0: One, two. One, two. Morning. Okay, there we go. Well, good morning, everyone. Well, it's, it's been a great privilege to be with you for uh, the last seven weeks. Uh, I was with you for five of the last seven, and privileged and blessed to be able to hear Tomo preach on Two of the people that encountered Jesus, Thomas did a great job on uh, Nicodemus, and then I thought an exceptional message on Zacchaeus uh, was that last week. Um, and if you didn't hear that message, I strongly want to encourage you to go and download it and have a listen to it. It uh, it really blessed me. Um, this is the last of the seven weeks, and we have, as Thomas said, been looking at people who encountered Christ in the Gospels and whose lives were changed. And today we're going to encounter uh, another man who met the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> this time a, a thief being crucified on a cross next to him. And uh, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 53 to kind of lay the foundation for what we're going to share today. And if you want to turn there with me, Isaiah 53, we will just read the second half. Of verse 12 of Isaiah 53. And before we do that, let's let's pray for the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We come to preach of Jesus' name. We come to lead sinners to the cross of Jesus. We come to find uh, an ability to see by the Spirit, the Lord Jesus raised from the dead, we come to Your Word, which is Jesus. And we come to all this, Lord, dependent on the moving of Your Holy Spirit. So God, I want to pray that You would speak to each of us. and Maybe that's a prayer You want to pray in Your heart this morning, even if You've never known the voice of God speaking to you, that you may want to pray with me this morning, Lord, speak to me from your word this morning. Speak to me. If you're alive, speak to me. And I pray you do that very thing in your grace, and you be gracious to us all because we need it, Lord. Amen. So, the second half of Isaiah 53, verse 12 says this, uh, Isaiah was prophesying of the messiahs. This is one of the most staggering prophecies of the Jewish messiah in the old testament. Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before the birth of Christ and yet by the holy spirit he sees into the future he sees a vision of the coming messiah the savior of god's people the promised king of israel who would be none other than god himself. And Isaiah says this about the coming Messiah. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now these three uh, things listed there by Isaiah are actually a wonderful description of the roles of the high priest in Israel. Um, in the nation of Israel, there, was, there were a number of officers that had been ordained by God, set in place in His national covenant people. Uh, there were, of course, uh, prophets. Uh, there were major prophets, and there were schools of prophets. Then there were uh, priests, all level of, of priests, uh, Levitical priests, those who would you know, perform the daily sacrifices, etc. There were kings. God ordained that there should be a king in Israel. First, he rejected Saul, and then he chose a a man after his own heart, David, uh, who was himself a type of Jesus Christ and on whose throne Jesus sat and continues to sit. Uh, There were also other roles in Israel ordained by God, Uh, like musicians and those who created, um, those who had artistic skill to build things, all sorts of offices, but perhaps the most important office in Old Testament Israel was that of the high priest. And in Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter 53 verse 12 there, we see in a, a, a beautiful way, as, as Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah, we see three the three predominant roles of the high priest. First of all, he would be numbered with the transgressors. The high priest had to be one of the people. He had to be weak and tempted like the people. The book of Hebrews tells us that the high priest had to be sympathetic to the people. He had to know What it was to be tempted in all things as they were tempted, so that he could have compassion on the people, on their constant failing and falling and sinning and transgressing of God's law, as he year after year would make intercession for those people and bring them back to God. He had to have compassion on them, so he had to be numbered with the transgressors, yet he had to bear the sin of many. In Old Testament Israel, there were many different sacrifices that had to be performed. There were daily sacrifices, morning and evening, in fact. And then there were monthly sacrifices at the beginning of every month at the new moon, certain sacrifices had to be made. And then there were annual feasts where certain sacrifices had to be offered up during those annual feasts of the people. But perhaps. Uh, The most important of the sacrifices in Old Testament Israel was the sacrifice that was made on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And on that day, God had said there had to be a holy convocation, that means a gathering of the people, that the, the people of Israel had to afflict their souls on that day, it was a day for mourning. And on that day, the high priest would sacrifice an animal, perhaps a little lamb, and he would take the blood of that lamb, and he would go into the temple, and he would approach that massive curtain that separated the inner sanctuary from the rest of the temple, where no one was ever allowed to go in there, only the high priest, once a year, on the day of atonement, and then he had to go in with blood, the blood of a lamb. And He went in through that, that veil and He took that blood and He put it on the lid of a box in which were the Ten Commandments. And the, the lid of that box was called the Mercy Seat. What an amazing picture of the Gospel. Um, the Ten Commandments were essentially the expression, the summary expression of the righteous and holy character of God. God was revealing Himself to mankind through a chosen people, Israel. God had to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah, so that when Jesus came into the world, that we had a a set of tools with which to receive Him. We had a paradigm with which to understand Him. And part of that paradigm was an expression to the people of Israel of the nature of God. I am a holy God. I am a righteous God. And the Ten Commandments were a summary statement of His righteous standard. And so the the high priest would go into that place, the inner sanctuary, and he put the blood of this Lamb, which had been slain on behalf of the people who had broken every one of the Ten Commandments, in the previous 365 days. Which of us can say we have not broken those commandments? Every time someone in Israel disrespected his parents or was rude to a mother or a father, he had broken the fifth of those commandments. You shall honor your mother and your father. Every time a man had looked with lustful intent at a woman, he had already committed adultery in his heart. Every time someone had got angry and called someone a fool, "Are oh, you idiot?" Jesus interpreted the uh, the sixth commandment, "You shall not murder." He interpreted that as murder. If you just have unwarranted anger in your heart, and so the high priest would go in with this blood, and he would put it on the mercy seat, and that blood would cover over the sins of the people for another three hundred and sixty-five days. Of course, the sins kept being committed. And so the high priest had to come again the following year and put the blood on the mercy seat again because the blood of bulls and goats and lambs was actually never able to fully satisfy the justice of God and forgive the people for their sin. It was merely a covering over until the time of the Lamb of God to be slain. The Messiah And it is this that Isaiah is looking forward 700 years to. He's seeing the death of the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, for the sake of God's people. So, the second role of the high priest, he would bear the sin of many. He would bear the sin of the people as he went in on their behalf to make atonement for them with the blood of the Lamb. And then thirdly, he would make intercession... For the transgressors, you know, it's interesting. When uh, the high priest went into the inner sanctuary, he wore this little breastplate called an ephod or an ephod, or it was attached to the ephod. And on that thing, there was a little plate in which there were twelve precious stones, and on each of the, of the stones was engraved one of the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so there's the high priest. He goes into the inner sanctuary bearing the sin of the people and he's bearing the the people on his heart. Again, what a picture of Jesus Christ dying for our sins on the cross, being raised from the dead, taking his own blood that he as high priest sacrificed himself, taking his blood into the inner sanctuary of the temple made without hands in heaven, when he ascended into heaven, and he goes into heaven with his people on his heart. an Amazing picture. And so um, the high priest would act as an intercessor between God and the people. He would bring the people to God and a peace between God and the people. He would make intercession. And here in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is looking forward into the future, and he sees the work of the Messiah as the high priest of Israel. And he uses what we call proleptic language, or prolepsis. Uh, what is prolepsis? Well, prolepsis is a language or a literary device where you use the past tense... When you are speaking about something that is yet to happen in the future. So let's think of an example of proleptic language in modern times. Uh, when a when a, a condemned a man condemned to death is led out of his jail cell to the place of execution. What do they shout before him as he goes? Dead man walking. Dead man walking. Well I mean, he's not really dead yet, is he? But he's as good as dead. In the next 20 minutes, he is going to be dead. And his death is so sure and certain that you can speak of it as as if it's already taken place. That's proleptic language. Here, Isaiah is using this kind of language to describe the work of the Messiah. It is so sure and so certain in the, the predetermined will and decree of God that this will happen. It can be spoken of as already happened even though it was 700 years before it even happened. And he says of the Messiah this, the Messiah was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. And essentially, he is predicting that the Messiah will be the final and consummate high priest of God's people. That after the Messiah, there will be no longer any need for a high priest, an earthly high priest. There will no longer be any need for the earthly sacrifices of the animals year after year. The whole Levitical system will fall away when the coming of the high priest, who is actually the high priest of the the heavenly temple where God dwells. And that's where He takes us as our high priest. Now today we're going to read the story of how Jesus graciously saved a foul, scoffing, blasphemous sinner, literally moments before both of them died. And I want you to see in the story this morning perhaps the most powerful display in all of Scripture of Jesus Christ fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah and acting in His role as high priest of His people. We see it so beautifully in the life of this condemned sinner who was being crucified next to Him. That as Messiah, as this man's Messiah, He would be numbered with this transgressor. Actually be nailed on a cross between two criminals. He was numbered and He died as a criminal with transgressors. He bore the sin of many and He bore this man's sin. Amazing picture. Jesus dying on the cross, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, and this man dying next to him, but Jesus is busy suffering for his sins. He bore this man's sin as his high priest, and he made intercession for this man. He actually brought this man to God. And uh, if you're here this morning, and you don't know the Lord if truth be told, you've never made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I've got some good news for you this morning. That Jesus still makes intercession for transgressors, He is able to bring you to God. And it's my prayer that your heart will be convinced of that today as we see Jesus displayed before us in His Word. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning is I want to look at these three roles of the high priest in Israel that Isaiah said that the Messiah would, would fulfill. And I want to see exactly how is it that Jesus fulfilled these three roles of the high priest. First, how is it that he was numbered with the transgressors? Go to Matthew chapter 27 and we will read from verse 38. Matthew 27 verse 38. This is, of course, Matthew's account of the crucifixion. All three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they recount in great detail what happened in those final moments when Jesus was dying on the cross. And this is Matthew's testimony of that day. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left, And those who passed by blasphemed Him, wagging or shaking their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Don't don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. The Pharisees knew exactly who He claimed to be. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said... Ha! He saved himself. Uh, He saved others. Uh, Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we'll believe Him. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He'll have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Now listen, even the robbers, plural, who were crucified with Him, reviled Him with the same Isaiah had said that the Messiah would be numbered with transgressors. Now surely the initial fulfillment of that prophecy was when Jesus Christ came and lived amongst us. The incarnation, as we call it, God Himself taking on human flesh, the incarnation is the initial fulfillment of that prophecy. He, being innocent and holy and pure and righteous, came down and was born in a, in a human baby's body in a lowly stable. And he, he lived in a, in a humble, poor family and he learned obedience to human parents. And if you would have walked past him in the street and you didn't know any better, you wouldn't have told the difference. He became a man. And yet... He was totally unlike us. The Bible says He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He was pure and holy, and yet He came, and He was happy to live amongst us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. He was happy to be numbered with transgressors, all of us being transgressors. He came and He lived amongst us. And John, his best friend... While he was in his earthly ministry, after the resurrection and after being filled with the Spirit and after a greater revelation of what had actually happened in that three years when they had been with him, John tries to put this into words for us in his Gospel. He tries to explain to us who this Jesus was that they spent three years with and he says this, and the Word, speaking of Jesus, the Logos, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, says John. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. John says He wasn't like us. I spent three years with this man. He was nothing like us. He was fully a man, yes, and yet He was totally unlike us. He was pure and holy. He was full of grace and truth. Truly He was numbered with transgressors by coming and living amongst us. But then surely this prophecy of Isaiah's found its most consummate and final fulfillment on the very cross where Jesus was crucified as a criminal. He wasn't run over by a a, a runaway donkey cart, you know, it wasn't an accident when he died. He died as a criminal, condemned as a criminal, as a lawbreaker. And there he was, dying as a criminal between two criminals. He was numbered with transgressors. And in fact, in Mark's rendition of the story, uh, if you can't get to Mark 15 fast enough, don't worry, I'll read it to you. Mark, in fact, quotes this very verse from Isaiah to say that it was fulfilled when Jesus was crucified between two criminals. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 27. With him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And as Jesus hung there, both of these criminals reviled him and blasphemed him. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark are clear on that. Both of them reviled him. And what an incredible picture of the Gospel that is. There is Jesus, the perfect Son of God, dying for a sinful world with arrogant sinners standing below Him, mocking Him, and condemned criminals on either side, blaspheming Him. What a picture of the Gospel. What a picture of the sinfulness of all men, from the most religious to the most criminal. And the love of a holy God, who sent His Son into the very midst of them, that they might be saved. What a picture of the gospel. And so it is that as we look at Isaiah's prophecy, we see that Jesus fulfilled the first of those requirements of the high priest. He was numbered with the transgressors. He lived amongst us and he died amongst us. Secondly, how is it that Jesus bore the sin of many? Well, you don't have to be around evangelicals like us for very long before someone will tell you that Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. Though he died as a criminal, he was dying for the transgressions of other people. I came, said Jesus, to give my life as a ransom for many. You know, we live in a Western world that has an epidemic ignorance of the seriousness of sin. We just don't take sin seriously in our culture. We live in a a Western culture which is entirely and thoroughly hedonistic. It is all about my pleasure and what I want to do. And And if I want to do it and it gives me pleasure, then I have the right to do it. That is the mantra and the swan song of the Western world that we live in. It's about me, my rights, and my pleasure. If I want to marry a man, I have the right to marry a man because that's what I want to do. Regardless of whether God has a right to determine what marriage constitutes or not. And we could say the same thing for many of our generations' besetting sins. We just don't take sins seriously. You know, when the, the high priest took that blood into the, the inner sanctuary and he, and he put the blood on, on that mercy seat, it was an incredibly solemn occasion and the entire nation of God's people had to afflict their souls and their hearts because they had broken the laws that were contained in that box in that inner sanctuary. How seriously do we take sin? Is it serious for us when we go to a movie and we watch a little bit of a sex scene. Ugh, you know, ugh, it was a little bit risky, you know, but it's okay. We, we just excuse it like it's nothing. We, we tell lies, little fibs, all the time it's fine. We skinner and gossip about people behind their backs. You shall not do that. You shall not uh, bear false witness against your neighbor, the Bible says. How seriously do we take sin? We, we don't talk about sin. We don't want to feel conviction of sin. If we hear preaching about sin, we think it's negative. We think it's, it's old-fashioned. It's, it's not for today. It's not going to attract you know, young people to the gospel. We just don't take sin seriously. You say, jeepers, why are you going on about sin this morning? Well, we're talking about Jesus Christ bearing the sin of many. And until you understand the seriousness of sin, you won't understand the seriousness of what it meant for Jesus to have to bear the sin of many. What What it meant for Him to actually have to go to that cross and take the sin that we have committed upon Himself, the hell that He had to go through to absorb God's wrath for that sin. We'll never understand the cross until we understand the seriousness of sin. And how serious God is about sin. You know, the Bible says when Jesus returns, the wicked who have not received Christ, who have not received forgiveness, they will literally, they will see Him coming and they will cry out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and crush them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. That's how serious sin is. And how great was Christ's agony on the cross. How great was the hell that He suffered for us the sin-bearing servant of God. They say that crucifixion is still to this day the most painful form of death ever invented. It was uh, invented by the Persians in about 300 B.C. Uh, It was taken up large scale by the Romans then in about 100 B.C. So that by the time they put Jesus on that cross, the Romans knew exactly what they were doing. They say that when a man was crucified... Within the first 20 minutes they would stretch him out so far and then he'd be hanging with all his weight on his stretched out arms. Within the first 20 minutes his wrists, elbows and shoulders would all dislocate. And his arms would stretch nine inches further than they were supposed to. And he would hang there. And He would be in tremendous pain as incredible, the weight of his body was stretched out on his torso. And in fact, the stress on the torso was so great that the diaphragm was unable to move. You couldn't get air into your lungs or out of your lungs as you hung on a cross. And so what you had to do in order to breathe, you had to lift yourself up on these dislocated limbs to be able to get a breath in and then get a breath out. Not only that, but Jesus had been whipped mercilessly to within an inch of his life before they put him on the cross. Whipped so badly, the Bible says, that you could count his bones. They whipped him so badly that he couldn't even carry that cross. They had to put it on another man. While he crawled up Calvary's hill so that I could be forgiven. What a Savior. And then they nailed nails through his feet and through his hands. And for six hours, my Savior hung there for me. And every breath he breathed, he had to lift himself up on dislocated limbs and with a steel nail through his feet in order to breathe. And death came slowly for him. He was being offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of God's people, bearing the wrath of God against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men like me. What a God this is that we serve, that it pleased God to bruise his own son, to put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for sin. How serious is sin? You just look at that cross and you know how serious sin is. And so it is that we see Jesus fulfilled the second of those requirements of the high priest that Isaiah had prophesied that he would fulfill. He bore the sin of many. Thirdly, how is it that Jesus makes intercession for the transgressors? Well, as high priest of God's people, Jesus didn't only die for the sins of God's people in an objective sense, like an objective event that took place in history, but subjectively, individually, personally, for the last 2,000 years, He has actually been bringing sinners to God. On the 28th of June, 1998, He encountered me, and He brought me to God, my my intercessor. He brought me peacefully to God. Has that moment happened for you yet, my friend? He will make intercession for you with our holy God. You may say, how is it that we are to be saved? How is it that we are to find our part in the intercession of this great high priest that can bring us to God and bring us peacefully to God. How is it that we come? Well, God has given, in the command of the gospel, He's given a very clear command to us. It's very simple. He has said, you must repent. You must repent of your sins, which means you must turn away from your sins. You must be converted, change direction. You must be willing to turn your back on your sin. And you must put your faith wholly in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Put no strength in yourself, put no confidence in your good works. No matter how many good things you think you've done, forget them all. You put your faith wholly in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, you will be saved. Now you may ask... If, if that is really how simple salvation really is. I mean, could it possibly be that simple, that all you have to do is just turn and believe, and you'll be saved? I mean, could it be that simple? Surely you have to say some kind of special prayer. Surely you have to do some good works, and like the Catholics say, you have to receive grace and then go and do some good works and become a good person, and then earn salvation. Or perhaps you must be baptized, again like the Catholics say. You have to be baptized before you can have your sin washed away. And and, and maybe that has to be done first. Or some priest has to absolve you or lay his hands on you. I mean, could it be this simple to be saved that you just believe? Turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to read from verse 39 together. This is now Luke's rendition. We've looked at Matthew, we've looked at Mark, now we're going to look at Luke's account of Jesus' death on the cross. We will read from verse 39 of Luke 23. Then one of the criminals, see now Luke gives us a strange and unique insight into something that happened that day on the cross. Matthew and Mark are silent about this, but Luke gives us a little insight into something else that happened, and it is so precious. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, don't you even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation? Are we, uh, and we, indeed justly? For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. While one man persisted in his, his anger and his rebellion and his sin and his blasphemy. He continued blaspheming Jesus. The other man, who shortly before this had been blaspheming Jesus and cursing Him, suddenly comes to his senses. And he admits his guilt. He repents. He admits his guilt. He says, we are suffering justly. We are receiving what we, what we are due because of the, the deeds that we've done. But this man, then he justifies Jesus as innocent. He says, this man's done nothing wrong. And his eyes are opened in a moment by the Holy Spirit. That's what regeneration does. Opens your eyes to see what you could never see before. By faith, He calls Jesus Lord, and then he he speaks to Jesus as being the king of a heavenly kingdom. The Bible says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And here we see the sovereign, gracious will of God... Suddenly this man's eyes are opened and he sees Jesus before him bleeding and dying as Jesus was. And yet he still sees him as the pure, holy Messiah of God and as King of God's eternal kingdom. And he sees Jesus as the one who holds eternal life in his very hands. This man's faith was absolutely astonishing Jesus was sweating and groaning and bleeding and dying and nothing could have been weaker or more despised than the body of the Messiah as it was crushed for our iniquities. And yet, this man looked at Jesus and he saw the King of the universe. John Calvin, quoting this scripture, speaking of this man's faith, listen to what Calvin said. How acute must have been the eyes of his mind by which he beheld life in death, exaltation in ruin, glory in shame, victory in destruction, and a kingdom in bondage. And as he looked, he he just asked for mercy. He just asked for mercy. There was nothing else he could do. It was too late for this man. He couldn't go and perform any good works. He he couldn't go and be baptized or have someone lay hands on him or say some special prayers for him. Jesus couldn't even reach him to touch him. All he had was a, a simple, humble prayer of mercy. Jesus, remember me. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't even understand all of what that means, when this kingdom is, where it is, how it comes. I don't really understand all I'm asking. Jesus, just remember me when you come there. Could it be so simple to be saved? Let's read the response of Jesus. Verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. Is it so simple to be saved? Hallelujah. Jesus is ever graceful, ever ready to forgive the most hardened, blasphemous criminal. There's hope for you, my brother. There's hope for you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care. Jesus is ready to forgive you. Will you repent and come to Him? Will you pray a simple prayer of repentance and just ask Him for mercy? Whoever comes to me, said, Jesus, I will in no wise cast out. But if you call on my name, you'll be saved. You say, how do I know that the gospel is as simple as we say it is? That everyone who just prays a simple prayer of faith in Jesus is forgiven of everything they've ever done and everything they ever will do. How do we know it's that simple? Well, was there ever such a simple prayer for forgiveness prayed than this dying man next to Jesus? And yet Jesus assures him, you'll be with me in paradise today. What an amazing thing. This is the seventh and final week of a series in which we've given ourselves to preaching the gospel of focusing on the gospel of salvation and maybe you've been to a couple of these sermons maybe it's the first one you've been to but i must now ask you as we come to a close of the series what is your response to all this how will you respond Because God calls you to respond. He calls for a response from you. It's no good to sit and listen and to ponder. He calls you to act. He calls you to come to Him in faith. I've done my best this morning to display Jesus to you as being numbered with transgressors. He lived amongst us. He died amongst us. I've tried my best to explain to you how He bore the sin of many, that He was sacrificed on behalf of God's people, that they might not receive the wrath of God. They might be set free and pardoned because He took the punishment for us. And I've tried my best to demonstrate to you that He makes intercession for transgressors, that no matter what you've done, you can come and He will receive you, if you will only come. Will you come? I'm going to ask you to respond. If I could maybe ask a couple of the musicians to come up and just give us some music as we have a time of ministry now. I'm going to ask you to do something very brave. If you're here and you know that you are not right with God, I don't know how to convince you of that. Only the Holy Spirit can convince you of that, that you are not right with God, that you still need to come to Jesus and be forgiven of your sins. If you know that's you, God is calling you to respond this morning. And I'm going to ask you, as the band plays, we're going to have a time of prayer. I'm going to ask you to do something without any fanfare, without any histrionics. Just quietly slip out of your chair. And come down here and join me, and I'm going to pray for you, and we will then pray with you.